0: We're pretty much anchored in 2 Corinthians 5, very appropriate and very sweet, spirited songs, and also Hebrews chapter 9, where I think if you've listened on Wednesdays, we've been hitting a little bit of Hebrews, I discovered something in 9.1 that I didn't think I would see, so we did two messages called Cosmicon, not Comicon, Cosmicon. Today I'm going to present to you a five course meal and the middle course is going to be the main course but I'm going to, I put this instead of in my usual fifth gear, five gears, I put it as a five course meal. But first, Captain Jasmine Adamiak, would you please rise for a moment? I just I thought you might all appreciate that Captain Jasmine, known to me as gunmetal, because of the color of her car, um, has recently won the Meritorious Service Medal as a servant of... So, very well-merited, captain. Thanks. She, uh, she's one of those that served very well in a not easy place to serve and served as a labor of love to the Lord she did it as unto the Lord too so I thought you might all appreciate that very much a five course meal first course Jesus is the reality of the Father the great Athanasian principle thank God that Athanasius came around when he did around the time of the Nicene Creed to fight a lot of error and to pretty much Save the faith, as it were, even though, of course, God does that. But he said that Jesus Christ is everything that the Father is, except he's not the Father. And that was a wonderful way to put it. And so I've kind of changed up on that a little bit, or at least fanned that doctrine out a little bit. Jesus is the reality, with a capital R, of the Father. He is all that the Father is, but he is not the Father. He is the reality of the Father, but is a person other than the Father. It's theology that gives us the definition both of person and nature. Jesus is also the reality of any given human person, any one of us, but not that person per se. He is the reality of any given human person, but not that person per se. The definition of person is what there are three of in the divine trinity, The definition of person is what there are three of in the Divine Trinity. This is what kids used to learn in school when theology was the queen of the sciences. But then in the Enlightenment, sociology became the queen of the sciences, and we've been going downhill rapidly ever since as a culture, as a nation, as a world civilization. So kids would have learned this. This theology isn't deep. It's what children would have learned. It's what colleges would have taught. It's what Harvard would have taught. And Yale and Princeton would have taught at one time in our history. That's how far we've fallen. And the most misnamed part of history is called the Enlightenment, which is the great benighting of all truth and the attack against the word of God. The problem with liberal theology is that it changed things that shouldn't have been changed. The problem with conservatives sometimes is they fear real necessary change. And so we're cutting it right down the middle here, theology. Jesus is also the reality of given human person, any given human person, but not that person per se. So the definition of person is simply what there are three of in the divine trinity and two of or one of in the divine trinity. The definition of nature is what there is one of in the divine trinity and two of in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'll say that again. The definition of person is what there are three of in the divine trinity and one of in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. A nature, we say divine nature and human nature, a nature is what there is one of in the divine trinity Father, Son, Spirit, one nature, one essence. But nature is also what there are two of in Jesus Christ because he has both the divine and the human nature. Jesus also is he who envelops a whole new creation. Each human being in Christ Jesus is a new creation, a new person because they participate in the reality that is Jesus and thus the reality that is the Father and the Holy Spirit. Again, I say participate in, because we are participators in the divine nature without becoming divine. Each human being in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17, is a new creation, a new person, because they participate in the reality that is Jesus, and thus the reality that is the Father and the Holy Spirit. As Jesus once said, if you receive this little child, You receive me. If you receive me, you receive the Father, which means that the Father is more like a little child than you and I, who are sometimes too complicated for our own good. And God the Father loves with an unrestricted and indiscriminate love, and he banishes from his presence all hatred, maligning, slandering, all bitterness, all resentment, all these things. By participation in the reality of Jesus, we are not that person, per se. We are not Jesus, of course, per se, but we are partakers of the reality of Jesus Christ, partakers of both his human and his divine nature. And this is first course then today is a short Lesson in systematic theology. Systematic theology is dedicated to making understandable that which is otherwise somewhat mysterious and difficult. Second course, what Jesus is vocationally, that is in his vocation, his mission, we are. What Jesus is vocationally, we are. We are a royal priesthood. He is a king, and in him we are kings. We reign as kings. We are more than conquerors in him. Romans eight thirty seven, Romans five seventeen, Revelation one five and six, we are royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests in him. Therefore, in him who is a royal priest and king, we are royal priesthood. Kings and priests, to God our Father having been freed from our sins by his blood. Jesus is the prophet, prophesied by Moses. A prophet will come like myself. He'll be raised up. The word for resurrection is used among you. So Jesus is the prophet, prophesied by Moses and anticipated both by Israel and many of the nations. For example, the so-called three wise men from the Iran-Iraq area, they were also expecting the coming prophet. And... Of course, Jesus is the divine prophet. We, the new covenant community, though, in him, fulfill a prophetic role. We studied that in some length in Revelation chapter 10 in connection with Amos 3, 5, and 6. Years ago, we spoke of urban terrorism being one of the first signs of the destruction of a nation. Sometimes urban terrorism comes from without, sometimes more often from within, as we have seen it in our past several years urban terrorism. And that's what Amos 3, 6 and 7 says, that God doesn't do anything before he first speaks through his prophets. Years ago, we did prophesy as a function of the church that there would be urban terrorism throughout our nation as a sign of its demise and the nation's demise. Does that mean the nation's going down the tubes? Yes. Yes. But does it mean that it cannot be intercepted? No, it means it can be intercepted precisely by what I'm talking about today. If the church will simply be the church, not try to change the world, but simply be the church. And I'm going to explain why in the following courses of your prepared meal. It's not usual to have five course meal for breakfast, but I don't even eat breakfast. So this is highly unusual for me. We, the new covenant community, function then in a prophetic role in him, sharing his prophetic vocation. What Jesus is, we are in vocation. What is less often considered is that Jesus is called the apostle once, ton apostolon in Hebrews chapter 3 in verse 1 of all places. He is called, consider the great priest, high priest or archpriest and apostle of our confession, Our confession is simply a series of united affirmations, and I've given you 10 at the beginning of this year. I'm going to hit you with the 10th today, skipping the ninth for the moment. But he is the apostle of our confession, which means the united affirmation of our faith. Apostle. So as apostle or sent one from God, we in union with him are an apostolate. And I speak of the whole community of the church. The apostles, the 12, there were the 12, they were called apostles. There is Paul, the apostle, not one of the 12. There are many apostles called apostles, men and women in the New Testament, not of the 12 and not Paul. There are elders, there are bishops, there are deacons, and you know the story. But the, problem, the main thing I want to hit with you, you with today is what Jesus is vocationally we are. He is the apostle, therefore, within him, we, the whole church, are an apostolate. Do we function as a church, as an apostolate, as a priesthood, effectively in our generation? That's the question. If we do, forgiveness comes in on a wave of, from the heaven and forgiveness brings with it the kingdom of the heavens on earth. When we don't function as we ought in our priesthood, in our apostolate, in our ambassadorship and in our reigning capacity, then forgiveness is withheld and the kingdom of God is shut to people. And we hold the key of knowledge, but we don't win ourselves, and we don't, therefore, let others come in. The key of knowledge means that we have a house that we enter, a house full of knowledge. The knowledge is our knowledge that we are reconciled to God in Christ Jesus, that the world is reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. We were just talking about Karl Barth's great analogy that everyone in the world has received a sealed letter that says, you've been reconciled to me. In Christ, Only Christians opened it. So we know something the world doesn't know. And so why keep that knowledge? Why hold that lantern under a bushel? Our message, the message of a true evangelist isn't believe and you'll be reconciled. It's you've been reconciled. Please believe it. And that's the transformative message. If you tell people they've got to come down an aisle, surrender their lives, give up their sin, be really heartily sorry for their sin, do all this other stuff, give up stuff for Lent, another dead work, so that you can binge starting on Easter. Uh, All these things are dead works. They are not the church functional in its proper function. It's not giving the key to the house of knowledge to people. And therefore, it is not allowing forgiveness And on the wave of forgiveness, the kingdom of the heavens to be released on earth. And that's what it means when Jesus said, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and what you bind on earth, etc. In fact, I'm going to hit that in the third course. And so as apostle or sent one from God, we in union with him are an apostolate also sent from God. I say again, what Jesus is vocationally, we are. R. Third course, on the seemingly cryptic saying, and I don't want to steal any thunder from Pastor Jeff Stewart, who's doing a marvelous job on this passage, including this verse, but there is a little additional insight I want to bring from Karl Barth on this. On the seemingly cryptic saying of Jesus in Matthew 16, 19, and his more straightforward saying in John 20, 21 to 23 and I do refer you to those verses notice it Matthew 16:19 I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven There was a monstrous presumption on the part of popes and bishops and priests that this meant that they had the right either to forgive people or not to forgive people that has caused a disaster a catastrophe in the spiritual realm because it has not shown that, that is the function of the true community at large, the body of Christ in union with Jesus Christ. And they have put it onto a select group of priests. They tried to say presbyteros is how we get the word priest, and so presbyteroi were a special class of people, so there's a special class of priests. And while they admit that all believers are priests, they don't take that too far. So on the seemingly cryptic saying of Jesus in Matthew 16:19, and his more straightforward saying again, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, literally the heavens. And whatever you bind, that means lock up on earth, will be bound or locked up in heaven, literally the heavens. And whatever you let loose on earth will be let loose in heaven, literally the heavens. Now, in conjunction with that, Jesus said to them in a more straightforward way, he said to his 12, and he said it previously in 2019 of John, peace to you, which is Jesus announcing their reconciliation to God in him that happened at the cross and peace to everyone else too. Peace to you, he says, as the Father sent me, apostolo, related to the word apostolon, Apostolo sent me. As the Father sent me, so I send you. Another word for send, pempo. I send you on a mission with a commission. I send you on a mission with a commission. As the Father has sent me, what I am in my vocation as apostolon, you are. What I am sent, you are. Sent with a message that says peace, A gospel of peace with your feet shod with the gospel of peace means that you have a message of reconciliation to the world to tell them something you know and not to hide what you know, but tell them what you know. The church does know something that the world doesn't know, but it's not a Gnostic knowledge that we hide and people have to come in and get mystically initiated to it through mystical rites or even by baptism or a whole bunch of other ridiculous Rituals without reality. No, but we do know something that the world doesn't know, but the knowledge isn't esoteric and isn't kept to us. It's something we shout from the housetops. It's something whispered to us that we shout from the housetops. Hey, I got this letter, and you did too. You didn't open it yet? Open it. It says we 've been reconciled to God in Christ for God made him who knew no sin, who never experienced the pleasures of sin to endure the pain of sin and the consequences of sin, so that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him, we might be made that is the world. you got your sealed letter, just open it. We have a not we have a key to knowledge, as luke eleven fifty two says, we have a key to knowledge, but probably the problem today is the church hasn't opened the door to that knowledge for themselves. They're afraid to because they have reached a point in their theology that's an impasse. We know it all already. Don't tell us and challenge us with changes. And again, liberal theologians are wrong in that they. Desire change, there's nothing wrong with the desire for change, there's something wrong with changing the wrong things, like right traditions and scripture and scriptural traditions and norms and values from the scriptures, and that's what modern-day liberalism has done theologically, sociologically, and politically to the destruction of this nation, I must say, rapid destruction of this nation, and same with theology. Liberal theologians want change, but they change the wrong things. They change the doctrines into doctrines of men. They even change the doctrine of the deity of Christ. They change the wrong things. Conservative theologians, though, and fundamentalists and people that like to call themselves conservative Christians resist change. But that's a problem because they resist the right kind of change. When change comes along and opens the gospel to a greater and more global and universal community of people, when it becomes the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, the so-called conservative theologian doesn't want to change, so they resist the, the right kind of change. As liberals often bring and desire the wrong kind of change, conservatives often resist the right kind of change. I found that out as a pastor because I don't consider myself a conservative or a liberal theologian. I consider myself someone totally open to God and however he directs me in theology. We are totally open to God. And if I remember right, that's one of our ten affirmations of to tell us thy phalanx. And so here's we're still in course three with these cryptic sayings. And again, Jesus said to them again, he said, peace to you. And he said, as the Father sent me, apostolo, so I send you. Then breathing on them, why? Because this commission can't be fulfilled in the energy of the flesh. Breathing on them, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Whenever you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, they are withheld. That is, the forgiveness of them is withheld. Now here's... What's wrong with our interpretation of that is we think that that's an ecclesiastical right given to a special class of priests or that it's a right given to the church to forgive or withhold forgiveness. And that's not what it means at all. And I was accidentally led to this passage one day because it was 200 pages ahead of where I was reading and I just lit on it the first thing in the morning and it lit up to me and this is the passage and it's two of them from Karl Barth in his... He had to do vo- this much on reconciliation, a whole bunch of volumes in volume four. That's what he wrote on reconciliation. Haven't read it all yet. Gonna though, if the Lord gives me time. This Matthew sixteen nineteen and John twenty twenty one to twenty three is not an ecclesiastical privilege given to privileged priests but the command and power given to the new covenant community to proclaim the forgiveness of sins that's already been wrought in Christ when he reconciled the world to himself. It's received when openly proclaimed. That forgiveness is received when openly proclaimed and withheld when the message, or at least the right message, is withheld. I'll say that again. The forgiveness of sins is received when it's openly proclaimed. And it's withheld when the message, or at least the right message, is withheld. When, as it were, the lantern is kept under a basket. When the church functions in the modus operandi, the right operation, and the modus vivendi, the way of livingness, as God prescribed in the power of the Spirit and prioritizing the Word, then forgiveness of sins becomes realized by more and more people because the reconciliation is proclaimed. When the church refuses this either for themselves or for the world, then they close up. They go into what Luther called curvature in ad se. They become occupied with themselves, their own self-importance, their own selfie. Their life is a selfie. They go into a self-importance. They begin to have resentment toward others that seem to prosper while they are not seemingly prospering. They get into all kinds of a curvatura in a say. When the church curves in on itself, it withholds forgiveness from being proclaimed to the world. But when the church lives outside of itself in Christ... The message is proclaimed. Forgiveness of sins is received by people that's already been won in Christ and the kingdom of heavens is released on the earth. Maybe saving a nation. Maybe saving a civilization. <coughs> Maybe saving a corrupt culture from disaster. Now, people today say the struggle is real because they lost their pills or something. And That's the struggle. Wait until an invading army comes in. And are we equipped? I don't know if you've seen any pictures of the Chinese army, the 200 million standing army, in perfect precision. It's hard to fight them if you're watching a storytelling by a drag queen. Now, and I'm not being, yes I am. Anyways, (laughs) this is not what Jesus is speaking about here is that the forgiveness of sins as an experience and as a reality to people is experienced when it's openly proclaimed, when the knowledge we have of the reconciliation of the world in Christ is proclaimed, the kingdom of heaven expands on earth. When it's withheld and the forgiveness of sins is not experienced by people because we're not giving the knowledge that we have of the reconciled world in Christ, then forgiveness is withheld as an experience to people. And the kingdom of heavens is locked up to the the age. So what am I doing? I'm putting the onus here not on people who are running around like crazy people without values. I'm putting the onus where it belongs, right on the church, the responsibility right at our doorstep. Now, here's what Bart wrote. The solemn connection with the founding of the community in which it occurs in Matthew sixteen nineteen and John twenty twenty one to twenty three, however, makes it probable that primarily and properly it is to be referred to the function of the community, what I call the New Covenant community in and in relation to the world. If so, it speaks of that which, as the community is at work, either takes place or does not take place in the world and among men, including the members of the community itself. If everything is in order and its its work is well done, then there must be a great opening, permitting, and releasing, that is, the promise and reception of forgiveness of sins. If its work, that's the work of the community, is not done, or done badly, then contrary to its task, the community closes the kingdom of heaven and excludes men from it instead of pointing them to the door which is open to all. And Jesus said, if I may add, I am the door. It holds where it should release. The remission which is the content of its witness is kept from men. That's the meaning of Matthew 16, 19, the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the forgiveness of sins. Let me say it again. If the church is functioning in its proper well-done function, then there is an opening, a great opening, permitting and releasing the promised reception of the forgiveness of sins. If its work is not done or done badly, and I would say done badly means not while the community is grasped and held by the love of christ not while the community is purged from its conscience of guilt and we'll be getting into that in a moment if its work is not done or done badly then contrary to its task the community closes the kingdom of heaven and excludes men from it instead of pointing them to the door which is open to all it holds where it should release the remission, which is the content of its witness, is kept from men. In other words, that gift of the keys of the kingdom of heaven wasn't just given to Peter. In fact, that whole thing where this, on this rock, there's two uses of the word rock in the French is the only one that got it right. You will be called Peter, rock, and on this rock, speaking of his confession of Jesus as Messiah, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand up against it, meaning The church shouldn't be afraid of death. It shouldn't be afraid of disease. It shouldn't be afraid of catching something. It shouldn't be afraid of the world. The church shouldn't be afraid of death. Death should be very afraid of the church because the church, when it's doing its job, is a witness of life and a witness against death. It is a witness of life. And it says all will be made alive in Christ, not just Jesus raised from the dead. And a happy few that believe in him and act properly or behave properly and believe properly will be raised in the end. No, life for all in Christ Jesus. That's the message that's been kept under a, a bushel basket. But thank God right now, instead of taking the basket away, God lit the lantern so much that it's burning the bushel basket. That's what's happening here. We're burning down the basket. And don't care about the consequences if the consequences, let the consequences be God's. In connection with this, now consider this, and I'm going to hit Bart one more time again, but in this connection, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. You lock up the kingdom of heaven. What? You lock up the kingdom of heaven. Once they had the keys to the kingdom of heaven, they locked it up. He took the keys away from the Pharisees who locked it up and gave it to the apostles who were a representative of the entire New Covenant community, all of which is an apostolate. Why are we all an apostolate? Because we're all in the apostle, Jesus Christ, and we are what he is in vocation. This is the kind of message that equips the saints for the work of ministry. This is the kind of thing that causes the kingdom of the heavens to be released to this earth and brings it to the earth and expands this kingdom to the earth. Now, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, what did they do? They lived inside of themselves. They went into the curvature in se, curved into themselves. Look how beautiful we are. We are the church. Let's build big golden altars and let's bring high spires and cathedrals and let's spend billions of dollars in cathedrals. Let's do this and let's do that. Let's make the preacher rich. And let's, let, let's make people be wealthy. Let's, make, let's follow after what the old, Test- the old King James called filthy lucre. Let's get people involved in the ministry for the money they make and can extort from people, really, is what it is. And Jesus lambasted them for that. He said, you lock up the kingdom of heaven from people. You don't go in yourselves, he said, and you don't allow those entering to go in. When somebody wants to go in, you're preventing them. That's a pretty strict... You know what, though? What if that was the same indictment against the church who has the keys now, but, oh, no, we're not... Oh, no, I don't want that change. I'm a conservative theologian. I'm not going to go changing. Uh, and they say... I've heard they say in rap sessions in certain places, he changed, he, meaning me. What? I changed? Yeah, it happens when you see an insight and a revelation of the saving significance of Jesus Christ. You don't let that lit lantern, you don't put a basket over the top of it. And so they go on with their little pep talks and their little sermons and their little tiny cloistered, enchanted world and never let anybody know that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Reconcile the world to himself. Now, what else did Jesus say? This one hit me even harder. Luke eleven fifty-two. Woe to you experts in the law. Not lawyers. There's that old joke, what, are, what's, what is 10,000 lawyers at the bottom of the sea? You say, I don't know, what is it? And they say, a good beginning. <laughs> well, Jesus said something similar. He said, if anybody offends one of these little children offends one of these little children, and my father is exactly like a child, anyone who offends one of these little children, it's better to have a millstone wrapped around his neck and thrown into the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the ocean. So what happens when you multiply that by tens of thousands and you mutilate children and you cut off the testicles of little boys who think they're little girls because they're too young to even know what they are yet or give them hormone suppressants or change their... What do you think is happening when people do this by the thousands now and parents let it happen because they're not parenting and schools have become evil, places of great evil? What do you think happens to a nation that multiplies that Wrapped around the neck, millstone, and dropped into the sea, multiplied by sixty million times, where lives have taken of unborn children. What do you think is going to happen? What are are you naive as to think that this can, that God can allow this? And He does not allow it, not because He's a judgmental God, but because He loves the little ones. That's why, and He doesn't. He, there's a point. There's a point where this tears. And what's happening is, you say, well, maybe the conservative politicians will help. Yeah, right. It's all part of one big happy party. There's one party, and they're all part of the same party. Grow up and wake up. The only solution to this mess is when the church starts to act like the church and takes that lantern out from under the basket, or God will just burn down the basket and let this message go forward. Let the church be the church, and let the church proclaim a message of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, instead of being afraid to enter into that knowledge yourself, and then holding the key so no one else can go into that house of knowledge. We have the keys to the kingdom of heaven being released on this earth. Not the Republicans, not the Democrats, not the middle in between the independents, They're all part of one big party that can't get anything done, that refuse to get anything done, that don't get anything done, that go to the capital where the Satan's throne is called Washington, D.C. They go to where Satan's throne is and get seduced so that they do nothing while they talk all day about all they're going to do. It's a one-party human failure. It's got to be the church. It's got to be God. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. It's got to be the church waking up to this message who have opened up that sealed letter and are telling everyone to open it up. You've been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about transing yourself into something else. You have a transformation of your body that's awaiting you in the resurrection into a glorious body like you never even imagined. All of us have to continue in this agona with our imperfect bodies. Oh, we'd like them to be different. But they're not going to be different. The outer man is going to decay, but the inner man is renewed day by day. I literally forget how old I'm getting because my inner man feels like a kid all the time. I feel like a kid inside. It's my inner man being renewed. God the Father is like a child. Jesus is like a child. My inner man is like a child renewed every day. The outer man is decaying. That doesn't bother me. That only shows me I'm closer. Closer to the beatific vision. Closer to Jesus Christ and seeing him. Closer to his embrace when I see him face to face and he receives me into the heavenly realm. Closer to that. And we all want that. We all want, we all long for the beatific vision if we're functional properly in the kingdom of God. Now, Barth again, listen to this. He said, the disciples are sent into the world to make known to it the one who, sent by God, has first called them to himself and gathered them as the people of his own, and in so doing to proclaim to the world that he also calls it that he is on the point of gathering it, the world, all of humanity, that he wills to enlighten and awaken it to know him and in him to know its reconciliation with God and the accomplished justification and sanctification of all men in faith in active conversion and obedience. This one thing is at issue in the various forms of its ministry and, it, and its witness. This one thing is at issue. We proclaim to you that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that he who knew no sin and knew none of sin's pleasure became sin and knew all of sin's pain which is incalculable, on the death of the cross, so that we, the world, would be made the righteousness of God in him. And so if someone comes and they want to shock us, and they want to shock you because of the way they dress, the way they act, what they've transitioned into, and say to you, what do you think of me? You say, I think you're the righteousness of God in Christ. And let me tell you why. And that might even transform them. In fact, it does transform them. It transforms us when we realize that we've been reconciled to God in Christ. So we see this idea come up again. You say, now, if you know the scriptures well, you might have even asked this already. What about Matthew eighteen, eighteen, nineteen? 19? That issue comes up again about forgiveness with regard to church discipline. Church discipline, it's called. We have to exercise it once in a while. It's simply an application of the ecclesia apostolate or the church and especially those who are spiritual. As Paul said, you that are spiritual restore such a person, someone who couldn't run faster than sin. Sin ran faster than them, overtook them. And that means one that can affect the whole congregation not just one that we commit every day and we we acknowledge our sin and God restores us. This is a sin that may affect the whole congregation, an ongoing sin or something that is the leaven that can leaven the whole lump. You that are spiritual, that is the apostolate, the actual functional apostolate among the New Testament community, you restore such a one in the spirit and be aware And watch out, because you yourself will be tempted in that. In other words, to restore someone from a fall costs the restorer more than it does the one who fell. Sometimes to restore someone and to restore them while protecting their privacy costs the one who's restoring them more than the one being restored. Ask a lifeguard saving a drowning person. The drowning person will beat the hell out of them by the time they get them to shore. And that's what happens with rest it's a restoration ministry. And so in Matthew eighteen, eighteen to nineteen, with regard to church discipline, the church functional as it should, if the New Covenant community with its apostolate is operating correctly, it will expel, I said expel, unrepentant offenders to prevent the leavening of the whole lump by the corrupting influence of one. The whole, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, whether it's a doctrinal leaven or with a, with a moral leaven, an immoral leaven. Again, I'm going to say this carefully. When the church operates properly, correctly, it will expel from its membership unrepentant offenders in, who are offenders that could affect the whole congregation ultimately to prevent the leavening of the whole lump by the corruption of one, but by the same Proper operation of the church. More importantly, it will restore repentant offenders. And that's the whole direction of this. It will restore repentant offenders in Galatians 6 1. This is the fulfillment of one of the ten affirmations of the new covenant community, which we've adopted and adapted to Tetalistai Phalanx, namely. Skipping for the moment affirmation nine here 's affirmation ten it comes from second corinthians six three combined with second corinthians eight twenty one it 's my motto for this ministry, incidentally, we give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone so that the ministry will not be blamed for we make provision for what is honorable not only in the lord 's sight but also in the sight of man. The point the church, functional as it ought, may have to bring temporary excommunicative discipline on an unrepentant offender who's beginning to affect the lives and lifestyles and doctrinal thinking of others with the intention of restoring that offender because God will put them in a position where he will press upon them the need for their repentance. He, you know how Paul put it one day? He said, I handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. You don't want to be under Satan. And let him, and with God permitting him to do what he wants to do to you. That's pressure. And that is the way that God gets Satan to serve his purpose of restoring such a one. A lot of us came to Christ because we were drawn by the Spirit and chased by the devil. I was both. Dragged by the Spirit and chased by the devil. And that's what brought me to the Lord. So, we give no opportunity for stumbling to anyone. We do that, we would allow for the stumbling to some if we allowed an openly unrepentant offender to remain in our midst without discipline. But if we function properly, we can function in a way to restore such a one no matter what the infraction and... That's what we're after always anyways is restoration because of the spirit of reconciliation. Fourth course for our little breakfast meal. What pertains to the 12 apostles pertains now to the new covenant community on the level of our time, the whole community on the level of our time, also an apostolate. In fact, more than this, what pertains to the apostle Jesus Christ called the apostle in Hebrews 3.1 and archpriest of our confession, Jesus, pertains now to the New Covenant community as partakers in the extension of the first divine mission. We are in both divine missions. We are in the extension of the first divine mission, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And we are also partners of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 6, 4, and 5, in the second divine mission, the mission of the Holy Spirit, which is to really bring the kingdom of the heavens on earth and release forgiveness through the message of the church. So what pertains to the twelve apostles, and then Paul and others who are named apostles, also applies and pertains now to the whole New Covenant community. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 20 and 21 is about. Doesn't mean we're all apostles in the in the special sense that the 12 were chosen, but it does mean that we function as representatives of Jesus Christ with a ministry of reconciliation to the world. So better than, better than saying that we are ambassadors is to say we are an apostolate sent with this message. Be reconciled to God because you have been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. So, what Jesus is, vocationally, we are. Since since the forgiveness of sins and with it the kingdom from the heavens is released on earth and not withheld by the new covenant community's proper modus operandi and modus vivendi. Modus operandi means mode of operation, modus vivendi means livingness or the way it lives. When the church, when the kingdom from the heavens is released on earth and not withheld, by the, kingdom's proper, or by the New Covenant community's proper modus operandi and modus vivendi, it seems important that we should consider what that operation and livingness is. What is that modus operandi? What is that modus vivendi? And this is how we'll begin. What Jesus is vocationally, we are. That's something that's belonged to every course so far. He is a minister in the heavenly sanctuary, as we're learning from Hebrews 9. After having offered himself once and for all in his self-sacrificing love, to put away sin, the Hebrews author put it this way, "But now, once at the termini of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." Hebrews 9:26. If he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, he was manifested in order to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself at the end of the old age, and the beginning of the new, in a place called the cross, then he has put away sin. And Hebrews 9.26b correlates splendidly, elegantly, and perfectly with Second Corinthians 5.21. He became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. In his self-sacrifice to put away sin, he became sin so that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 14, if one died for all, and he did, then all died. And therefore, the love of Christ controls me now. Knowing the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, the love of Christ controls me now. There's a connection there. There's a disconnection when one does not recognize the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. There's a connection there's a plugging into the electrical current when we realize and we, we realize that one died for all and all died and that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We realize in a sudden jolt, an awakening, Christ shines on us with that knowledge and we go out to give it. We don't withhold it. I know preachers that won't enter this knowledge because they'll lose their salary and they'll lose their affiliation. They won't say what I'm saying, though they know it. They're the, among those whom Jesus called hypocrites because you won't even enter in yourself. And so you're keeping the whole congregation from entering in just so you can keep your damn paycheck. Just so that you can keep your prestige among an affiliation or a denomination. Just because you're afraid of men. Just because you're afraid to be maligned and slandered by people. Just because of the fear of men, which is a snare. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. Now, I just channeled the spirit of Jesus Christ. Oh, he just channeled somebody. Yeah, I just channeled Jesus. How do you like that? Now, that's what preaching is all about anyways, channeling Jesus. If it's not, what is it? It's a pep talk. So, how does this work out? How... Just exactly how does this work out? Well, put it this way. As Romans 12.1 says, according to a reasonable service, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why is that reasonable? Because Jesus presented his body as a living sacrifice. And that resulted in his being a service and minister in the heavenlies, in the heavenly tabernacle. So it's reasonable that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice Not unto death, he did that, but unto service of the living God, Romans 12, 1, and Hebrews 9, 14. According to our reasonable service, present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God in order to serve him. Hebrews 9, 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And service there means priesthood. Effective priests go to the throne of grace and make intercession Intercession that results in proper and powerful evangelism. Intercession that results in people being added to the Lord, in the body of Christ being supplemented and augmented both in numbers and in stature, in growth, in growing. And that's what happens when the church is functional. I have to say it. I have to say it. The church, by and large, especially in the United States of America, is not functioning in that kind of modus operandi. It's talking about seed gifts that you give so that we can keep a network going that doesn't even preach the gospel. It talks about doing this and that thing and singing and this and that and all these little services and signaling of how righteous they are, which is virtue signaling, which is a dead work. It's not involved in the ministry of reconciliation because it does not acknowledge that when one died for all, all died, and that all will be made alive in Christ, that the whole world has been reconciled to God. It does not go forth with that message. It does not preach that message. Somebody's got to point it out. Jesus did in his time, and I'm channeling Jesus. Does that mean I don't love my fellow believers? It means I love them so desperately I want this for them. That's what it means. Now, having offered our body as a living sacrifice to God, we also serve as priests to God. This service is optimally effective only when the conscience is purified from dead works to serve a living God. It's optimally effective... When we experience, in our experience, when by the blood of Christ on the highest level of our consciousness, there are five levels of the human consciousness. On the top level, in the very top level, there's the conscience. But it's at that same top level where the love of Christ gets a grip on us. And that's what lasts. What lasts is what gets to the top level of our consciousness. Let brotherly love continue, and it will, because the love of Christ has gripped you on the very apex of your soul, the apex anime, as the Latin says. When the love of Christ controls us for all mankind, and our conscience is purged from guilt... And from dead works, by the blood of Christ, we serve as priests, we serve effectively as ambassadors, we serve as an apostolate, and when accusations come our way, and they will, our conscience is clean. We, we can resist those things because even if our conscience condemns, condemns us, we know that God is greater than our conscience and he knows all things. It's also on the highest level of, unco- of our consciousness that we are gripped by the love of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.14. That's when the church begins to operate as the church, when it's controlled by the love of Christ and when it's free from guilt in its conscience. It's also on the highest level of conscience that we are gripped by the love of Christ. When the love of Christ controls us at the peak of our soul and when the conscience is purged from guilt that leads to lifeless actions, guilt leads to lifeless actions, Oh, if I do this, maybe I'll feel better. Maybe I'll assuage my guilt. Maybe I'll pay back what I did bad. Maybe I'll—it's all lifeless works, lifeless works, dead works, as Hebrews 9:14 describes them. Our conscience is purged from the guilt that leads to lifeless actions, empty rituals, virtue signaling, and all kinds of acts done to assuage a guilty conscience. Then we serve the living God as priests with bold confidence to enter into the heavenly holy holies through a blood-paved highway, through the blood of Jesus, and a clean conscience. This is part of the community's proper service and function, which leads to the forgiveness of sins being released in the world, and with it the kingdom from the heavens, and the addition of people to the church, both in numbers and in stature. Here's the fifth course. We're talking here about completion. All of Hebrews is regarding completion. There are 56 of the 150 psalms that have the title totelos," regarding completion. Hebrews is like that. It's like a psalm. And we sang a psalm today. Psalm, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Hebrews, in a sense, is a revelation. It's an apocalypse of Jesus Christ and his universally saving significance. It's also, in a sense, a psalm. And it's about completion. Many times you'll see that word in Hebrews in various ways, whether it's finished or accomplished or mature or any of the tel, T-E-L, like tetelestai verbs. In, and as I said last week, our whole message, my whole message is simply the echo of the voice of Jesus Christ saying tetelestai, it's finished. You're reconciled. You're forgiven. You have the forgiveness of sins. If anyone is in Christ and everyone is, he's a new creation. There's a new creation. So, fifth course, again, we're talking about completion. Our completion as members of the New Covenant community is when we live and act in self-transcendence. Not turning into ourselves, but transcending ourselves. And by that, I simply mean living outside of ourselves in Christ. Extra nos, outside ourselves, en Christo, in Christ Jesus and not by curvatore in ed se. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.15 says. One died for all, that all died, so that those who live will have God live in them, Christ live in them. Christ in them makes an appeal to the world. Be reconciled to God because you've been reconciled to God. Be what you are. Realize what you are. Realize that you've been reconciled. Don't believe to be reconciled. You've been reconciled, please believe it. And that faith is transformative, incidentally. Once you realize what you are, you might even start acting like what you are. You might actually become what you've been made to be, the righteousness of God in him, in the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. When the new covenant community lives with curvature, and I'd say in itself, curved into itself, where all of life is a selfie, It imitates the experts in the Mosaic law and the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, whom Jesus blasted for shutting up the house of knowledge and the kingdom from the heavens. They didn't enter themselves, and they prevented others from entering. The knowledge of the house of knowledge is the knowledge of the reconciliation of the world to God in Christ. When the church doesn't enter that house, it actually prevents others from entering because it does not proclaim what it refuses to know. I'll say that again. When the church doesn't enter the house of knowledge to know that the world has been reconciled to Christ, to God in Christ, it doesn't enter that house. It actually acts to prevent others from entering. So next time you see somebody acting in a way that really chaps you and makes you angry and gives you righteous indignation, you realize that that person's probably acting that way because the church didn't act like the church in this generation. How about that? That doesn't let me be judgmental. That makes me banish all reviling of people and attacking of people's reputations. That makes me banish all hatred. That makes me banish all ressentiment. That makes me banish all judgmentalism. And once you've banished all judgmentalism, you can be critical of social trends. If you're not, you're a dummy. And by dummy, I simply mean a a ventriloquist dummy. I'm not talking about anything that would be offensive to anyone at all, ever, anywhere, which is impossible to do today because if you say the word the, somebody will say, what do you mean by the? (laughs) And I'll just tell them, "You, you want pronouns? God's got two. God is he and they. Think about that for a while. He as to his essence, they as to persons. God has confused gender problems. Well, that's because in Christ there's neither male nor female, but I don't want to go there because that's way too controversial, even for yours truly. Now, now, closing then, we're still in fifth course. This is kind of like dessert, so that's why we can get a little silly and sugary. Being controlled by the love of Christ, it is no longer us who live, but Christ lives in us, and we become ambassadors of the gift of his grace to the world. We become effective ambassadors of his gift of his grace and salvation to the world. We deny ourselves, and by that it simply means we deny ourselves that curvature into ourselves, the sense of self-importance. So we deny ourselves We take up our cross and we follow Jesus. Taking up our cross, we realize and confess and acknowledge and align to the reality that we've been crucified with Christ. That's all it is. And that nevertheless we live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And if Christ lives in me, who do you think is making his appeal to me, through me? Who do you think is speaking in me? Paul said, you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me? He said, that's not a problem. Don't you know that Jesus Christ is in you? And he is, and you can know it unless you take the test wrong. You did the test wrong. You put the test strip in the wrong liquid. So you found out, no, I'm, no Jesus isn't in me because I don't behave right. Jesus is in you because the Bible says he is. You seek a proof of Christ. You said, the pastor said today that Christ is speaking in him. In him. Right. Well, Jesus Christ is in all of you. And if you recognize Jesus Christ in you, then of course you recognize Jesus Christ speaking through your preacher, and you recognize Jesus Christ speaking through your friend, your companions, your conversation partners today. Bless all the conversations that go on in this church and the families of this church today, Father, in Jesus' name. Bless their meals, bless their travels, bless their talk, bless their conversation. Bless their health. Speak health and peace into their homes. What if that was Jesus speaking in me to the Father in prayer? What if I'm channeling Jesus? Then you go out from here and channel him too. He's in you. He's in you. Don't you know he's in you? And if you don't know he's in you, it simply means, it doesn't say you're reprobates in 2 Corinthians 13.5. It says if you don't know he's in you, it's because you took the test wrong. It's not that you failed the test. It's that you took the test wrongly. All right. Closing then. Still in Course 5. Boy, this dessert tastes tasty. In the house of knowledge, which we enter with the key of knowledge in Luke eleven fifty two, we now know all people after, not after the flesh any longer. We know something now. We don't even know people like we knew people before. We don't know people after the way we knew them before. I don't know that person as an L, a B, a Q, a 2, a 5, a barbecue. I don't know them. I know them as in Christ. I don't care what pronoun they've adopted and what gender they've turned into from what they were at birth, which God assigned them. I don't care. Because the Bible tells me that when I look at any person, they are in Christ. They've been reconciled to God in Christ. The whole problem is they don't know it, and I do. I've opened my sealed letter. I I urge and beg them, please open your sealed letter. I can't open it for you. You can open it. And find out that you've been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. And you can start from there instead of thinking that you've got to make yourself right to enter into his kingdom. You can start right from there, reconciled and having peace with God. If Jesus came to your house today and you opened the door, no matter what you looked like or how you dressed or how hungover you looked because you were, he would say to you, peace. And you would say, what do you mean, peace? And he would say, You've been reconciled to God in me. I'm the reconciliation. I'm your peace. Peace to you. Peace to you. Shalom alaikum. Peace to you. All right. In the house of knowledge which we entered, we now know something, but we're not Gnostics. We know something that everybody's supposed to know. We're not hiding this knowledge under a basket. We're, we're lighting this lamp and we're saying, Wake up! And Christ will shine on you. Wake up to this reality. That's evangelism. I've never heard an evangelist say, I'm an evangelist and here's my message. The world's been reconciled to God in Christ. Be reconciled because you've been reconciled. No, I hear if you invite Jesus into your life, if you're sorry enough for your sins, if you promise that that you'll follow him forever, that you'll even become a martyr for him, that isn't the gospel. That's hiding it under a bushel. And I pray that bushel basket burns because God's going to make that light shine whether you like it or not or whether you participate in it or not. I chose to participate and I choose the consequences and I haven't felt them yet like I'm going to and I know that. I'm sure of that. Now we know them. Now we know people. We know people now. We know people like Clint Eastwood said to the woman in the uh, movie, I know things about people, Lily. <laughs> we know things about people. They've been reconciled. I don't know anyone after the flesh anymore. I don't know anything after the labels, after the letters, after the acronyms they put in front of I know no person after the flesh anymore because if anyone is in Christ, and they are, and everyone is because one died for all and all died and they're alive now and they're in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, it's a new creation. I can't know anybody like I used to before. Once I saw people like trees walking. Now I see all things clearly. I see all the cosmos and all the universe as something God is going to reconcile and liberate from slavery to corruption. I see the whole human race, dead and alive, all the time of all of human history, as something reconciled to God in Christ Jesus that was yet still will be gathered gathered yet into a glorious new universe. So again, we function. You see, individual human response, even the response of faith or believing, of repentance of sins and baptism, etc., doesn't affect this reconciliation. It doesn't effect it, make it happen. It doesn't affect it, take it away. Individual human response, even the response of faith or believing, repentance of sins, and baptism, etc., doesn't effect this reconciliation or affect it. However, the human response of many reconciled individuals who know they are reconciled is essential for the effectiveness of the new covenant community as a royal household of priests, as an apostolate, as afflicted but well-equipped ministers of the new covenant. After you're reconciled, then faith as a response, as an obediential potency to God to participate in the divine missions, that becomes an issue now. Faith becomes a splendid gift from God. And I refer you to Wednesday's messages, the last several for that. So in our final piece of dessert, completion in Hebrews signifies the principle that the saints... Become complete by reaching complete self transcendence, which is simply a dynamic state of being in love. When life becomes a being in love with God, you have reached completion, practical completion in this life. Completion. And The whole goal of Hebrews is to bring believers into completion where they become complete true worshipers of God in spirit and in truth because they have reached complete self-transcendence, which is the opposite of complete inwardness, curvature inside in self-absorption, self-justification and self-deception. So, again, reaching completion is the reaching of a complete self-transcendence, which is a dynamic state in faith, hope, and love in the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. It's a state, a dynamic state, that's only possible and only ongoing, and it lasts through the decisive purgation of the conscience from dead works. That is, works that are incomplete in God's eyes. Jesus said, I found your works to be incomplete I found your works to be incomplete. Who was he talking to? The church at Sardis, who had a reputation for being a lively church. He said, you have a reputation among men of being a lively church. You jump up and down, you bang tambourines, you do all this wonderful Pentecostal charismatic stuff and you smile and you do the Christian mannequin dance and yet he said, you are as dead as a doornail. You're dead. And I don't find your works complete before me because they are works done from a curvatore in it, say, an unpurged conscience and not from a state of completion, which is self-transcendence. You work from your own self-importance. You work from a not a denial of self, but from a preservation of self. And so your works are incomplete before me. He doesn't say that in hatred. He doesn't say that in anger. He says it in love. And he wants them to return to their first love. For the dead church in Sardis was a church that produced works, not from self-transcendence, but from the untranscended self. The old man, Pelias Anthropos, who in God's eyes is in fact dead in Romans 6.6. And we should account him to be dead, ours to be dead. These dead works are done by persons with unpurged consciences, thus motivated by guilt and performed by the energy of the flesh, by competition with other people, by measuring themselves by other people. These dead works include empty virtue signaling that comply not with God's will, but with the fleshly standards of a corrupt culture, woke ideology, political correctness, and with speech that is spiritual-sounding, empty chatter and acts that point so subtly or overtly to oneself. Oh, it's not me, it's Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) They lack the real life and spiritual substance, and they speak with empty God chatter. Dead works are often proliferated by people who allege to be spiritual and not religious. I'm spiritual and not religious, but who in fact are carnal and practitioners of a religion called the worship of self. They're very religious. Many people say, I'm not religious, and the, the, incidentally, true religion in James 1.26 is complete self-transcendence, which enables one to care for widows and care for orphans and go outside of self as an end agent of benevolence and beneficence to other people. That's true religion. True religion is complete self-transcendence. So someone says, I'm not religious, say to them, really? Then you don't transcend yourself. Oh, you're religious, though. I, I can. You're, you worship at this temple called self. There's a little idol. It's a selfie of you. So I'm going to close. When the New Covenant community, on the other hand, is like this, and preachers coach them to be like this, it withholds the key of knowledge and prevents the flow of forgiveness and the free entrance of the kingdom from the heavens on earth. But if we act under the compulsion of the love of Christ with purified conscience, we become effective priests, effective apostolate, and guess what happens as a result? Forgiveness is released. The keys of knowledge open the house of knowledge. The kingdom of heavens gets unleashed on the earth, and the unchained gospel just goes nuts. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.